Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. I don't have any announcements or apologies to make today, so we can get right into it. Today, we are going to be talking about the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs. It was October of 1918, and World War I was still raging on in Europe, although at this point the Triple Alliance wasn't doing so well, and that included the Austro-Hungarian Empire. One of the problems with fighting one of the deadliest wars in human history right in your own backyard is that a bunch of your most able-bodied men begin to rapidly disappear from the workforce and enter armed service, from which they have a very high likelihood of never returning. As the war dragged on, food in the empire began to dwindle, so the families of conscripted men began to starve. As you can imagine, having your loved ones taken from your home and placed into military service was bad enough on morale, and famine, even at the lowest levels, was even worse. Of course, this is war we're talking about, so things can always get worse, and in Austria-Hungary they did. The war effort consumed one-fifth of the entire empire's GDP, and from the outbreak of conflict in 1914 to 1918, which is the year we're talking about today, inflation had increased more than 12-fold. These two factors utterly destroyed the economy, impacting the working class the most, since pretty much any wealth that they had was in liquid cash, whereas the upper classes owned land, and other properties that guaranteed them a higher standing in society, no matter how bad inflation got. The combination of conscription, huge casualty rates, starvation, inflation, and wartime spending spelled out a nasty future for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But at this point you may be saying something like, okay, so what? This type of stuff happens to wartime nations pretty much all the time. Why is this any worse in Austria-Hungary than it would be elsewhere? And that's a fine point, but what you need to know is that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was a very special little empire. Within the imperial borders, there were no less than 11 distinct major ethnic groups, all living under one umbrella. It may have been called Austria-Hungary, but the reality was that the Austrians and the Hungarians made up just 43% of the population. They had to share that with Czechs, Serbs, Croats, Poles, Ruthenians, Romanians, Slovaks, Slovenes, and Italians, plus about a million other people from dozens of even smaller ethnic groups. When an empire that diverse comes on times as hard as they were actively experiencing, it becomes very difficult to keep everything together. So, as Austria-Hungary rapidly approached defeat in the Great War, people started exploring their options. Some of these people, namely the Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs, decided that they wanted to work on their own pan-Slavic state. You see, Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes are all Slavic peoples, much like Russians, Poles, or Czechs. Their thought was that Slavs should not have to suffer under the weight of the Uralic Hungarians or the Germanic Austrians, and that they should forge their own path. After all, this is the Balkans, so ethnic tensions are always the deal of the day. So, on March 3rd, 1918, representatives from these groups met with one another in Zagreb, the modern capital of Croatia, and agreed to the creatively named Zagreb Resolution, 
which resolved to create a unified nation between them. The chairman of this meeting was actually one Antipavlich, who longtime listeners of the show may remember from our episode about the independent state of Macedonia as the man who helped assassinate the king of Yugoslavia in 1934, though that hasn't happened yet at this point in history. Now that they had their plan formalized, these delegates split up and headed to three strategic cities in order to create local movements there and further their goals of unity and independence. One group headed for Split on the southern Croatian coast, one headed for Sushak on the northern Croatian coast, and the last one headed for Ljubljana in modern Slovenia. You may have noticed that the Serbians didn't get one of their own, and there's two reasons for that. For one, there already was an independent Serbia at this point, the Kingdom of Serbia, so the Serbs that we're talking about today are just the minority of Serbs living in Austria-Hungary. The second reason is that at this time, there was very little distinction between Serbs and Croats, and even Bosnians for that matter. On most maps or charts from the time, you'll see them referred to as Serbo-Croatians or something along those lines. So no need for a separate Serbian delegation. It was better to just double up in Croatia. The main goal of these three delegations was to win over the Croat-Serb coalition, which was an established political party within the empire that had governed the kingdom of Croatia-Slavonia, which is basically just a state within the empire, since 1903. They were immensely popular, winning 48 of the 88 seats in the kingdom's parliament in the 1913 election, so support from them would provide a lot of much-needed legitimacy to this pan-Slavic movement. As the autumn of 1918 rolled around, it was pretty clear to everyone that the Triple Alliance was about to lose the war, so the pan-Slavists began making plans to set up their very own national assembly, which would act as their governing body. It was this action that finally got the attention of the Croat-Serb coalition, who was afraid of being undermined by this new movement. They demanded access to future meetings, to which the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes agreed, which got them the legitimacy they so desired. From here, significant political parties within the three ethnicities' communities began flocking to their banner more and more. On October 5th, the People's Council held its first official meeting in Zagreb with representatives from all parties and ethnicities present. They declared that a central committee would legislate their prospective government and that there would be one council member per 100,000 people within their borders. Then, on October 13, 1918, the Austro-Hungarians signed a peace with the Triple Entente. And three days later, Emperor Charles I tried to cool his simmering population by announcing further autonomy for the various peoples of his empire. While this may have worked, it never got the chance to because American pressure demanded self-determination for the empire's minorities. And on October 19th, the People's Council declared itself the legitimate voice of the Slavs within the empire and people began to rally to the pan-Slavic cause, with masses demonstrating in Zagreb in late October. On October 28th, the Council reached out to form diplomatic relations with the United States, to which Emperor Charles told the Croatians to, quote, do as you please, unquote. 
even going so far as to send his military into the region, but not to suppress the movement. Instead, the military was there to help the council keep a firm grasp on the rule of law in their claimed territory. Charles even went so far as to sign over the Austrian navy, merchant fleet, and port cities to the Pan-Slavists, which was a huge win for them. It was now extremely obvious that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was collapsing, so the council went ahead and declared the creation of the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs on October 29, 1918. Their president was the Slovene Anton Koroshek, with his two vice presidents being a Serb by the name of Svetozar Privicevic and a Croat, our old friend Ante Pavlic. That night, they also reached out to the British, French, Italians, and Serbians to formally announce their arrival on the world stage, and their intentions to one day form a single pan-Slavic state with the Kingdom of Serbia and the neighboring Kingdom of Montenegro. Serbia responded a little over a week later and recognized their new government as legitimate, announcing that they hoped the Entente powers would do the same. Unfortunately, no reply ever came from the West. By the way, remember when I said that Emperor Charles had signed over his entire navy and merchant fleet to the new country? Well, he didn't really do that out of the kindness of his own heart. He wanted to avoid his forces falling into the hands of the Entente powers and their allies, and by signing them over to a neutral nation like our new state, he hoped that he could avoid this fate, since the Entente would have no justification for attacking them. Unfortunately, this gamble doesn't seem to have worked. On November 4th, the Italian Royal Navy moved in and began occupying port towns that they laid claim to. By November 9th, half a dozen port cities had been captured by the Italians, who were aided by the British and the French, and pretty much every ship available was confiscated. The justification for these maneuvers was pretty simple, if not annoyingly transparent. The Entente powers did not recognize the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs. Therefore, they were confiscating Austro-Hungarian ships, not Slavic ones. Recognition or not, the sea borders of our little state were demonstrably weak. Speaking of borders, the land borders of the country were pretty synonymous with modern-day Slovenia, Croatia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Initially, the state wanted to claim all of the territory inhabited by Slovenes, Serbs, or Croats that had lived within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but there was one major roadblock to this plan. Vojvodina was a region of the empire that had a large population of Serbs, but they refused to join the new pan-Slavic state. Instead, they joined the pre-existing kingdom of Serbia, which they bordered and was frankly far more well-established than the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs was. This was a real kick in the teeth to their whole ideological movement, because just the day before this event, one of their own regions that bordered the kingdom of Serbia had seceded and joined the monarchy as well. However, neither of these two losses really ended up being losses in the end. That's because on November 23rd of 1918, the National Council of the State of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs announced that they would officially be unifying with the kingdoms of Serbia and Montenegro. This declaration was confirmed a week or so later on December 1st, 
when Alexander Kara Georgievich, the regent for the Kingdom of Serbia, made a very similar announcement, calling the upcoming state the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. From that moment on, the National Council stopped operating, and the Kingdom of Serbia expanded a considerable amount in a peaceful absorption of a neighboring state. Now it was much closer to actually uniting all of the southern, or Yuga, Slavs. So there it is, October 29th, 1918 to December 1st, 1918, is the 33-day lifespan and story of the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs. So, why was this country forgotten? I think this one has a lot to do with what I alluded to at the end of the narrative there. The state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs was the very first Yugoslavian state. The only problem with this being that there were a lot of Yugoslavian states. In the years of 1918 to 2003, which is just 85 years, there was first the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs, then the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, then the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, then they went into exile during World War II, then there was Democratic Federal Yugoslavia, and then the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, and then finally the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. That's seven different states in just 85 years, averaging a new Yugoslav nation once every 12 years or so. To me, it's little wonder that the earliest and shortest-lived predecessor to such an unstable state has been largely looked over. Before I let you go, I did want to correct something that I mentioned a couple episodes back. I said that I was going to be uploading my episodes to YouTube, but I've taken them all down since then. I never actually checked the quality of the audio on those videos, and turns out it was really compressed and tinny, and just generally not very fun to listen to. I'll eventually re-upload them, but if you've been wondering why there's nothing there, that's why. So, thank you all for listening to this episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. If you want to hear more of my lovely voice, feel free to check me out over on patreon.com slash historyofforgottenlands. I run an entire second podcast series over there, and there's over two hours of extra content just waiting to be listened to. Uh, and if not, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you all again next week.